When last we were in chapter 12 of the Revelation, verses 10 to 12a, Satan and his army of evil angels had just been defeated and forever cast out of heaven. What followed was a time of rejoicing and an occasion to celebrate heaven as one step closer to realizing, quote, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, end quote. Though the war was won by angels, the celebration is voiced by those who benefit the most from the victory, humans. For this is a Christ-centric moment. The righteous righteous result of this war is credited to, quote, the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. That is, the sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross is both the reason Michael and his angels won the war, won the victory over Satan, and from which the resolve of the persecuted on earth has and will come. It all goes back to Christ on the cross. This passage inartfully, in my opinion, bridges heaven and earth. The impetus for the celebration is the victory in heaven over Satan, but the celebration is voiced by humans specifically referencing how the blood of the Lamb empowered believers on earth during the tribulation to overcome Satan's power. Michael and his angels overcame Satan and his angels in person, as it were. But on earth, people are plowing through the tribulation for the same reason. Christ, the blood of the Lamb. Wisely, this human choir limits the rejoicing to the precincts of heaven, for there will be little reason for rejoicing on earth for the next few years. For Satan was not just thrown out of heaven, but thrown down to earth. Let's read our passage, the first portion of it, Revelation 12. Let's read verses 12 to 14. favorite place to be in front of the mic. Uh, (laughs) For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. 
Before we dig into this passage, let's reestablish our timeline. Could we have chart 11, please, Mike? The seventh trumpet of the trumpet judgments has already sounded. Verse 14 of chapter 11 announces that, quote, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The first and second woes were the fifth and sixth trumpets. Respectively. The third woe is the seventh trumpet, which is the bowl of ju- the bowl judgments. It consists of the bowl judgments. In verse 15, the trumpet sounds. Writes, then the seventh angel sounded. Followed immediately by a heavenly chorus announcing that this moment is a turning point. Even though there still remains the second half of the tribulation, from heaven's perspective, the sounding of the seventh trumpet marks the beginning of the end and the coming of Christ's reign over his kingdom. Parenthetically, one impression I've gotten throughout, but right here especially, is that all of heaven is so eager for this kingdom that they repeatedly announce it well in advance of it actually happening. They just can't wait for this kingdom. And one thing that tells me is that if we don't have that same feeling in us, well, they know something we don't. They, they realize how, what an incredible thing this is. We just go on with our lives, say, oh yeah, kingdom, your kingdom come, Lord. And then we go on and forget about it. They're saying, it's here, it's almost here. We can taste it. Verse 15 marks the beginning of what I've termed the third parenthetical visions. Now, we could have chart 15, please. Then you can take a break. Smoke them if you got them. Verse 15 marks the beginning of what I've termed the third parenthetical visions, which taking up just over four chapters in the Revelation, separate the sounding of the trumpet from the actual pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. This is one thing that can be very confusing in the Revelation. The trumpet sounds, and we expect, the okay, here we are, the bowls were, the, the, this is the last stage. Then there's a little more than four chapters of parenthetical visions, and only after that are the seven bowls of wrath actually poured out. We're now poised in this session to conclude the third vision in this four-chapter extended passage, which began at verse 1 of chapter 12. Verses 1 to 6 gave us the shorthand version of this episode, We now conclude the more detailed version of verses 7 to 17. The miraculous saving of the Israel remnant from an enraged Satan. 
So first verses 13 to 14. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That this will be a perilous time for Israel is apparent in that it is she whom Satan seeks out first upon being thrown out of heaven. Having great wrath, in verse 12, translates not orge, which is what we've seen before, but the Greek thumos. Walvert helps us understand the difference. The word for wrath means a strong passion or emotion, but carries less weight than orge. It's an emotional rather than a rational state of mind, and stems from his own awareness that his days are numbered. My understanding of that, my translation of that, is that this means that Satan isn't using common sense now. He's not using logic. He's just losing his head over this. And people on earth will pay the price. We now enter what the prophet Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's distress. Turn with me to Jeremiah 30. Prophet Jeremiah... Oh, Linda. I forgot my water. My water. Please. Jeremiah 30. Let's begin reading at verse 3. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. That's the good news. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Verse 5. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all the faces turned pale? Thank you. Verse 7. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. So much of what's going on in this moment, this episode of the eschaton, for Israel specifically, is centered on the Messiah. It's We say it's all about Christ, who is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. If you are a living Jew around the middle of the tribulation on earth, your fate, your eternal fate, will be determined by your decision regarding Messiah, which is not very different from the way it is today. Is the historic Jesus of Nazareth the promised Messiah for Israel? 
or are you waiting for another? Parenthetically, any Jew worth his salt should pour through the Old Testament and he will soon come to the conclusion there's no point in waiting. All the, all the prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ. If you don't accept Him, you're, you might as well give up. If for you Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, you will most likely take refuge in a place God has prepared for you in the wilderness. Safe from Satan's persecution. Life for you will not be easy, but you will survive. If, on the other hand, you are a Jew who rejects Jesus as the Christ, you will be persecuted, most likely tortured, and die. Having rejected Jesus as the Messiah, you will be among those consigned to the lake of fire at the final judgment. The prophet Zechariah informs us that this second and unbelieving group will constitute two-thirds of the nation of Israel at the time, with the remaining one-third saved. Here's how Zechariah writes it, chapter 13, verses 8 to 9. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Yahweh is my God. That's something else. If you are earnestly pouring through God's Word, it becomes hard to understand how anyone can conclude that the church now replaces Israel. I don't understand that at all. Passages like this. God looks on Israel during the end times and says, You are my people, and I am your God. John MacArthur organizes Satan's campaign against Israel into three attacks, and I think that's a helpful way to picture it, for indeed, that's how John presents it. Attack 1, chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. Attack 2, verses 15 to 16. Attack 3, verse 17. So let's look at the first attack. Greg, you always come in so late anymore. How's the new one coming? Sleeping well, sleeping well. Sleeping well, that's a good thing, right? Okay, attack one, pursuit. The word translated persecuted in the NASB and New King James means to put to flight, to pursue as it is translated in the ESV and NIVs. Now note, though we'll not discuss it in depth until we get to chapter 13, I just want to point out that as Jesus describes in Matthew 24, at this point in time, 
where, where we're at right now, the abomination of desolation is now standing in the holy place. That is the statue of Antichrist, supernaturally charged by the false prophet to fool people. The statue will speak. It will work miracles. It is now standing and being worshipped in the Jerusalem temple. Let's... Oh, who did I give this passage to? Matthew 24. Did I... Oh, I'm sorry. Well, hang in there. You do a good job of reading. Matthew 24. Turn there, please. I gave you the longest one. It's a blessing. 24. Matthew 24. This is the... uh, ah. No, no, no. This is his what address? Come on, somebody. I'm not the only one who's lost his mind. This is Jesus's. No, no. It, it's ah, gee, good grief. It'll come to me. What? It'll it, yeah, hang on. Okay, Matthew 24. Start with 15. 15 to 21. Go. I told you, Scott, last week would have been a piece of cake, and you weren't here. Okay. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Has anybody thought of it yet? The Olivet Discourse? Olivet Discourse, thank you. Because he did it at the, the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, but it's eschatological in content. Whew. Thank you. We can well imagine the frantic chaos occurring in Judea in the Middle East. Jesus tells them, just run. Don't turn back, don't look back, don't pause, don't put your pants on, don't think about it, just run for the hills. Literally. Verse 14. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The late great professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford and author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, portrays in his books this imagery literally, sending giant eagles to swoop in and rescue the good guys at the last minute. And you always you watch that or you read it and you say, well, where were you when they were really in trouble way back? Come on! And Oh well, I want to rewrite everybody. 
God's Word uses the imagery to express either rescue, as He does in Deuteronomy 32.11. He spread His wings and caught them. He carried them on His pinions. Or protection, as in Psalm 61.4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Neither of which refer to literal avion flight. And so here. Here the imagery means that God, by whatever means, will facilitate the escape of this remnant from Israel to a safe place in the wilderness. Now, we have to keep reminding ourselves. What I'll bet you anything, I'll bet you anything in your mind, when you read this passage, you see Israel wearing their robes with their girdles about their waist, running, carrying their satchels on their back, running into the wilderness. Well, maybe. But we forget that this event is yet future for us. Who knows how far into the future? Who knows how God facilitates this journey? Will God supply buses, hovercraft, spaceships? Or will they trudge there on foot? We don't know. But it's yet future to us. All we know is that God has prepared a place of refuge for them. Some people speculate where that is. Some people say it's Petra. Why? And what difference does it make? God has prepared a place for them. That's the important thing. God himself is determined to save a portion of messianic Israel from the rage of Satan. In this, he will be successful. How and where, we're not told. But we are told for how long? For a time and times and half a time. That is three and one half years. The second half of the tribulation. There this remnant will not just be held safe from Satan and his angels, but will be nourished. The word is trefo. Fed, reared, nurtured, made to grow, implied their numbers will grow. It'll be a healthy community. From the presence, which means the face of of the serpent, Satan will not find them. They will never see his face. Now, verses 15 to 16. Let's read the next portion of our passage. Verses 15 to 17. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Oh, I just went on further, didn't I? That's it. Okay.
Attack two, a river. Thwarted by God in his pursuit of Messianic Israel, Satan tries a different, more long-range tactic. He sends their way what is termed, quote, water like a river, end quote, a different sort of pursuit. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. By the way, the, the, the word translated poured in the NASB is probably better translated spewed. Uh, the, the word has... Has, the word has more trajectory than just falling out of your mouth. It's shooting out of your mouth. Though it's true we have striven to interpret most of the Revelation text literally, sensibly, the sensible interpretation of this passage in this case would be to accept much of it as being told using figurative language. For the whole thing is literally drenched in it. In this episode, Satan is not an angel, but a dragon and a serpent. Israel is not a nation, but a woman. Israel does not run into the wilderness, but flies there on two wings of the great eagle. Maybe it is a hovercraft. It is hidden and protected not for three and one half years, but for a time and times and half a time. Rather than struggling to make literal sense of a serpent pouring water like a river out of his mouth, we must take this to mean that it, what it often means in the symbolic language of the Old Testament. For example, Job describes the perils of the wicked man with, quote, He lies down rich, but never again. He opens his eyes, and it is no longer. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. Job 27, 19-20. Turn please to Jeremiah chapter 46. Jeremiah 46. And let's read verses 7 to 8. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like the rivers whose waters surge about? Egypt rises like the Nile, even like the rivers whose waters surge about. And he has said, I will rise and cover that land. I will surely destroy the city and its inhabitants. The imagery is even more obvious in the next chapter, chapter 47. Look at verse 1. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh conquered Gaza. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are going to rise from the north and become an overflowing torrent and overflow the land and all its fullness, the city and those who live in it, and the men will cry out and every inhabitant of the land will wail. Aha! But how does he describe this water now? 
Verse 3, because of the noise of the galloping hooves of his stallions, the tumult of his chariots and the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers have not turned back for their children because of the limpness of their hands on account of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines. Well, there you have it. In the first part of that, it describes an overflowing torrent, waters rising, overflowing the land, the city. Then in the next paragraph, it tells you what it's talking about. Galloping hooves, stallions, chariots, rumbling of wheels. That's the flood. There the armies of Egypt are pictured in their destruction of the Philistines as water rising, an overflowing torrent. Thus we can easily apply a similar reality on the ground to this second pursuit by the armies of Satan. Perhaps he thought this initial attack would be swift and decisive with a relatively small force, a mistake many generals and political leaders still make. They think, oh, we'll just... I mean, when you read, when they, when, uh, when the South went to war against the North in the Civil War, the war between the states, they went telling each other, a few months, we'll be back home. We'll get married then. They always think it'll be over quickly. When that fails, Satan musters a larger, more comprehensive force to attack Israel with far greater numbers. But once again, God protects his children. Verse 16. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Because he's done this before, in the Numbers narrative in which the Lord strikes the families of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram for their rebellion, we're free to interpret this more literally. Turn please to Numbers chapter 16. Scott, this is the last one. Numbers chapter 16, verses 30 to 33. But if Yahweh creates an entirely new thing, and the ground open its, opens its mouth and swallows them up with all, that is, is, with all that is theirs, and they go down to Sheol alive, then you will know that these men have spurned Yahweh. And it happened that as he finished speaking all these words, The ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down to Sheol alive, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly." We can easily picture the intervention of God in his protection of Israel, commanding the earth to open and drink up the river of demonic angels flooding in to attack Israel. The Lord God may even implement this destruction by means of one of the many earthquakes inflicted on the earth during the tribulation, perhaps. 
We don't know. He does not need to employ natural means, but he can. He might. Attack three, a seek and destroy mission. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Finally, Satan storms off in a huff. We can, we can imagine his frustration. I mean, come on. His anger. How it's been piling up on him. First he gets thrown out of heaven. Then he tries this again against Israel. Then he tries that against Israel. That fails. Now finally, like King Ramses at the shore of the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments, he sends his troops to their doom but spares himself by declaring that this is not a job for a king, thereby saving himself from the carnage. In verse 17, after witnessing what happens to his troops, the frustrated and enraged Satan does an about-face and heads off in search of victims elsewhere to make war with the rest of Israel's children, the woman's children. Opinions vary on what is meant when John expands on the words, her children, with, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Most of our modern versions translate this correctly as the rest of her children. Or the word is seed, spermatos, that which is sown. The King James Version remnant perhaps implies a protected group, which is not the case here. It just means everybody else. The word is loipan, meaning the rest, the remaining, which could refer to just about anyone other than those who are specifically sheltered by God. As to the delineating phrase, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, let's work backward. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus obviously refers to Christians. And MacArthur points out that this refers not to testimony about Jesus, but the testimony he gave, the truths he taught that are revealed in the New Testament. It's what Jesus said and what he taught. That is, people who hold to the teachings and commandments of Christ Jesus. But to who does it refer with, quote, who keep the commandments of God, end quote. On the surface, at least, we might logically conclude this refers to Jews who keep the commands set forth by God through Moses in the Pentateuch. Thus, taken together, this verse would seem to refer to those who do both, that is, Messianic Jews. If that be the case, we should expect to see some etymological connection between the word used here, it's the Greek entolos, and references to the commandments in the Old Testament. And we find that connection in the words of Jesus in the Gospel accounts. In Matthew, for example, in his conversation with a lawyer who asks him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 36-40. In all three instances of that word, commandments, Jesus is specifically referring to the Ten Commandments using the same word, entolos. He used the same word again when answering the Pharisee about divorce. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Same word, entolos. In the Gospel of John, however, Jesus also uses the word to refer to his commandments. For example, John 15, 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Same word. MacArthur interprets this verse as being all-inclusive, that is, Jews and Gentile Christians. But I favor the position of John Walvoord, who writes this. While the program of Satan is against the Jewish race as such, anti-Semitism as a whole will reach its peak against Jewish believers during this period. There is a double antagonism against those in Israel who turn to Christ as their Messiah and Savior in those critical days and maintain a faithful witness. Undoubtedly, many of them will suffer a martyr's death, but others will survive the period, including the 144,000 sealed in chapter 7. It's John Walvoord. Following Boolean logic, the text does not say or, but and, which means that both conditions need to be true. In Boolean logic, if it's or, either condition can be true. In Boolean logic, if it's and, both conditions have to be true. Thus, I interpret this verse with Walvard as speaking specifically of Messianic Jews as the prey of Satan during the second half of the tribulation. Jews who are now Christians. Jews now following Christ Jesus, acknowledging Him as the long-awaited Messiah. But they're Jews. They also follow the law. That is not to say that other Jews and Gentiles will not suffer as well, but Satan marks out the Messianic Jews, Israelite by birth, now following Jesus as his special prey. He hated Israel. He's always hated Israel. But he hates all the more Israel following Christ. The worst of both worlds in his, in his, from his perspective. What are you going to do with these people? Not just Jewish followers of Christ, but everyone on earth during this horrific period could do well to recall that grand old hymn penned by Martin Luther in 1529. We've already recalled it earlier this morning. He stole my thunder. There's always some preacher who steals my thunder. But then we sang it. Now I want you to listen to a portion of it. But 
within the context of the eschaton, the context of the tribulation. It applies to us today, but it applies all the more to these days that we're looking at here. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. (laughs) We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And then the last verse closes with this. Let goods and kindred go. Let them go. Let let go of them. This mortal life also, let it go. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Martin Luther, 1529. And I suggest let this be our battle cry as well when Satan comes on his prowl for us, even today. Our Father God, we wrap ourselves in Your protection. Whether it be the wings and pinions of an eagle, or the earth opening up to destroy our enemies. Whatever it is, it is You protecting us. And if it is Your will that we not survive until Christ returns, that is You as well. That is Your sovereign will. That too is Your protection. In either case, we live our lives knowing that You are sovereign God and Christ Jesus is our Savior. And we look forward to the day when, like lightning in the sky, bouncing off the clouds halfway around the world, He will be seen. He will come in judgment and wrath. And all things will be made right. In Jesus' name, amen.